Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I hope you had a great Easter. I loved being able to celebrate baptisms last week, people choosing to be all in with Jesus, and I actually forgot to say this last week, so if you were here last week, you noticed that when we put pictures up, everybody says kind of a one-line statement as to why they uh, want to get baptized. Several of them have, had references to cookies. Did anybody notice that? Yeah, well, that's because our wonderful person does the class, uh, uh, Mary Lutz, and she has, that, that's the illustration of the power of a good object lesson. She actually brings Oreo cookies and milk to class, and the power of the lesson is the, the, the way she does it is so powerful and so good that half the kids walk out going, I want to be God's favorite cookie. So that's the reason that shows up there. If you, you can find out more about that, if you want to find out how to be God's favorite cookie, you can go to the class and you can get Oreos and milk too. And uh, if you just want to find out what the illustration is, you can go to the class next time it's offered as well. It's, it's awesome. So I love getting to celebrate last week all the ways that Jesus is really that good. We talked about about it. And and by being good, we don't just mean just kind of satisfactory, tolerable. Jesus is phenomenal, over the top in what he does and who he is. And in response to Jesus' willingness to die for us and his resurrection, uh, conquering every aspect of his death, his disciples re-engaged their faith and boldly shared their faith with Jesus with everyone. How do we respond to that same good news? I don't know about you, but with anything in life that's good news, I, I love telling other people about it. Like uh, when I was a kid, I, I won a, at Christmas time. There was a, a drawing for this gold banana seat sissy bar bike. Anybody remember those things? They were awesome. It was so much fun. We used to have these piles in the back of the yard of, of dirt. You'd ride headlong at full speed, and it would stop the bike on, on a dime, and you'd jump through the sissy bars and f- fly like 20 feet. It was so much fun. Wish I could show you a picture of it. I had a buck teeth and all with it, but the pictures are packed away right now as our family's in the process of downsizing to an, an, a, a smaller home, a newer home. Uh, when I won the bike in the drawing, uh, everyone in town wanted it, so I was the really cool kid. Everybody, everybody wanted what I had, and I wanted to tell everybody about this bike. The same was kind of true. I don't know about you. Back when the iPhone first came out, you kind of walked around telling everybody about it, telling how exciting it was that this thing in the palm of your hand could do more than what you used to be able to do on your desktop computer. Remember that time? We all have our good news things in life, don't we? That we all love to share, and we freely and liberally talk about those good news things and share them with others. If we believe Jesus is really that good, how are we talking about him to others as well? And I get it. Talking about Jesus gets complicated, doesn't it? It's a whole different animal than a lot of those things like an iPhone because these days the word Christian seems to evoke as many negative reactions as it does positive ones. And I don't know about you, that bothers me. Does it bother you as well that that's the case? I mean, I hear people make comments similar to Gandhi where he said, I I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Or there's a guy named Herb Kahn, a San Francisco journalist, who said, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they are even a bigger pain the second time around. Now, as much as I hate the sentiment, you've got to admit that's pretty clever. Ah, That's pretty clever. 
as painfully we hear it as well from adult Christian converts who have become disenfranchised with the church. For instance, Anne Rice, uh, author of Vampire Chronicles, says, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but being a Christian or being part of Christianity, that's out. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservingly infamous group. For ten years I've tried and I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Ouch, that's kinda, that kind of hurts, doesn't it? As followers of Jesus, forgiven, loved, spirit-filled people, we can do better than this, can't we? If we do anything great here, let's be great with the great commandment. Remember what the great commandment is? great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love other people really well. I mean, Christians certainly have done this really well at different times, especially in the early church. Luke's observation of the first century Christians in Acts talks about the quality of their life was so rich, their worship so genuine, their life together as followers of Jesus so deep, their love for their neighbors is so palpable that they were having favor with all the people, he says, and the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. So what went wrong? How did we end up alienating the world and the world around us from Christ rather than attracting it to Christ? Throughout generations, I mean, the people of God have often not represented Jesus well, making huge public relations nightmare for the movement Jesus started through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So throughout history, we had, even before that, we had Noah's drunkenness, right? We had Jacob's lies. David's adultery and murder, Solomon's womanizing, Peter's abrasiveness and cowardice. And as history continues, we, we get reminded about horrid things done in Christ's name throughout history, right? Certain actions done during the Crusades, the Inquisition, the genocide of Native Americans, institutional slavery, white supremacy, all those things at one time or another have been done by misguided people in the name of Christ. Then on a more personal level, we also see that our lives are often perceived as being, well, more blah than compelling, uh, more contentious at times than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more materialistic than generous, more, more proud than humble. And then rather than shining a light to the culture, we often become products of our culture. And yet Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to be a city on the hill. Those are compelling, powerful metaphors. What do you think of this statement that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said? He said, Christians become a light to the world to the degree that they stand out as different from the world. Now, he's not talking about standing out as different from the world with, with this attitude that we are morally superior in some way, have better values. It's not an us and them uh, uh, kind of mentality. The, what he's actually talking about is the world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor. Not the kind who denies the needs of others around him and who takes up their own comforts and follows their own dreams alone, but the kind who deny themselves and follow Jesus in his mission by loving the weary world back to life. The world thirsts to see what it means to be a more whole person with full and meaningful lives and relationships. 
And honestly, I think we long as followers of Jesus to see Christianity return to the place where it is again so that it's so life-giving and so contagious as it was in the early church in that passage we just read about. So much so that I think it helps us to think about what, what would it look like, as Tim Keller has said, for us to live so compelling and lovingly in our neighborhoods and cities and nations that if we were suddenly removed from the world, our non-believing neighbors would miss us terribly. What would it look like for Christians to become the first place people go for comfort when a life-altering diagnosis comes or when anxiety and depression hit or when a child uh, goes off the rails or when a spouse files for divorce or, or when a breadwinner loses their job? What would it look like for a woman with a crisis pregnancy to see the local church, not the local clinic, as her most trustworthy source of love, non-judgmental, practical support, wise counsel, and encouragement that she needed? What would it look like for the local church to become the most diverse and welcoming community on earth? What would it look like if, if Christians became not only the best kind of friends, but the best kind of enemies, returning insults, with kindness, and persecution with prayers? What would it look like for Christians in Mass to start loving and following the whole Jesus, the whole Scripture, the whole time into the whole world? In short, what would it look like if, if Gandhi were to say nowadays, if he were alive, your Christians are so like your Christ, or a San Francisco journalist was to say, born again makes you so much more winsome and good and better, not worse. And for Anne Rice to, to look at the church and say, I want to be a part of that and serve alongside Christians. What would it look like for Christians to become an irresistible force again, even among the non-believing friends, colleagues, and neighbors? It's surely possible. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, we Christians, we are to be the aroma of Christ in the world. And that's supposed to be a sweet, good aroma, right? I like how novelist Madeline Lengel described this. She says, we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. See, the negative stories about Christians and Christianity aren't the whole story. For every poor representation of Christ, there are thousands of infectiously beautiful ones. Christians have shown groundbreaking leadership in science. Just look across history. Pascal, Copernicus, Newton, and many others. In healthcare, look at all the hospitals named after a saint, right? All the ones named after some sort of church movement, right? Well, what about the arts and literature? Rembrandt and, and Bach and Dorothy Sayers and T.S. Eliot and even Johnny Cash, the man in black. The academic community. I mean, look back. All but one of the Ivy League universities were founded by Christians for a Christian purpose at one point. And look at mercy and justice throughout history. William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, Dorothy Day, George Muller, Martin Luther King Jr., and so many others. These are great examples of being Jesus to the world. The Gospel of John tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this doesn't merely describe Christ and his mission. It also defines our purpose as his ambassadors to a lost and fractured world. To put it plainly, we are to love this world. 
We are not meant to be holier than thou, enemies of culture, and we are not meant to be driven products of our culture. We are designed and called by God to be culture shapers for the good and flourishing of all. It's encouraging, actually, to hear how many current observations are seeing how Christian faith in its purest form is actually producing beautiful lives just like that. New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof frequently writes of how today's Christians outnumber the rest of the world in volunteer hours and dollars given toward alleviation of poverty and human suffering. It's not even close. Christians are so far more generous with time and money. The gay mayor of Portland, Oregon from 2005 to 2009, his name was Sam Adams, has spoken publicly about how positive his experience was partnering with local Christian churches to alleviate needs in the Portland community of Oregon. And if you don't understand Portland, it is not a friendly place to Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity I believe that we want to be a part of. We want to give even the tired and cynical world reason to pause and consider Jesus. And we want them to know that, that, the, that the hope they thirst for, that only Jesus can provide. If I'm honest, my walk with Jesus has its ups and downs, just like yours. After all these years of being a Christian, uh, there are ways that I become more like Christ, and there are still ways that I struggle and ways that I fail and disobey Jesus. When I am at my best, those who are closest to me would say my life is full of the fruit of the Spirit work in my life. When I'm at my worst, the same people would say I can be petty, even angry about insignificant things. I think about money way more than I should. I find too much satisfaction in the praise of people and, and instead of solidly staying in, in just a solid identity and peace in the grace of God. I, I can be selfish and I can be cowardly and jealous and ambitious for the wrong reasons. I can be like the Pharisees, one who uses my spiritual gifts and abilities to bring attention to myself and applause to myself rather than applause to God only. I can be afraid about the future as much as I trust God for the future. I'm a man who lives by fear, and I'm a man who lives by faith, both. I sometimes think my personality or faith is not all that aromatic, or, or if it is, it stinks. And I should leave the reaching out to others, to someone else, to someone who's better, more spiritually mature, uh, better with people. And then I remember, I'm a pastor. And that's a good reminder for me, because there are plenty of reasons not to be discouraged. Every single one of us, we will all continue to fall short of that which God created us to be. But we know that throughout the Bible, even the greatest heroes of faith were flawed and broken and wrecked and weary and restless and disillusioned at times, even when they were at their very best. The Apostle Paul felt the gravity of his own imperfection and falling short actually more at the end of his journey in life than at the beginning. See, early on, as you look at Paul, early on he referred to himself as Paul the Apostle. A little bit later in life you see him referring to himself as Paul the least of the Apostles. And then even a little bit later than that you hear him referring to himself as Paul the least of all saints. And right at the end of his life he says, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance." that Christ Jesus came to, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And yet God, through the likes of him and others, has shaken the earth. And he can do the same through each one of us here. 
God is not expecting us to be awesome and prettied up and all put together in order to be able to be representatives of his or share the faith. He's asking us to just simply be honest and grow in more confidence in him who has forgiven us and who loves us and has set us free. God uses all kinds of people. In fact, if we were to look at a list of the people we think as the elite VIPs who are central to God's plan to renew this world, they are ordinary people. To the most overlooked, uneducated, non-credentialed, yet redeemed, restored, forgiven, spirit-filled band of fishermen and tax collectors and addicts and widows and children and prostitutes, Jesus spoke these words. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, this is why we felt like we needed to do a short series on how to actually talk about our faith and, and the gospel in more relational ways. We're actually calling this series the backyard gospel. Let's look at those terms that we selected, the gospel. The gospel is not a word that just pertains only to Christianity, although the early church did use it to refer to Jesus, and it's, it's still used today in Christianity. The Romans in that time also used that word gospel for various things, and their emperors especially liked the word gospel to announce and let people know that something new and something great was happening, and a lot of times that was centered around something big they were doing or their enthronement or whatever. The gospel referred to something that would unveil a new future, a new time, and the whole world was invited to participate and benefit in it. See, that's the good news. The gospel as we know it as followers of Jesus. When the early church used the word gospel, it was often viewed as a slight to Caesar because the church was saying, Jesus, this crucified and risen Messiah, is Lord of the world, not Caesar. The gospel, the good news they were declaring, was that Jesus was God, the true king, who made the world, fundamentally rescued the world from its corruption, and he's taking his power and he's reigning. This gospel, this good news is so crazy because Jesus is saying, I'm going to perform for you even if you don't deserve it. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love even when you don't return it to me or don't even acknowledge it. What we mean by backyard in this series has to do with what today's sociological term is being used, the decking of America is the term they're using. Americans used to hang out on their front porches, right, and saying hi to their neighbors and walking, and even walking by. The pictures of the, this brings to mind are, are of Andy Griffith and his Opie and, 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 and Aunt B, so cute. And, and if you could see those boots he's got on, those, those, are, those are lovely boots. You'd, you'd really just want them. I mean, the front porch used to be the communal place, but over the years, America has retreated to our backyards and we put up privacy fences. The only people who come into our backyards are those who uh, we agree with. Now, I, I love backyards. I love having some privacy in a place in the back just to hang out and play with family and friends, and that's why we're calling this the backyard gospel of this series, because we want to be relational with those we know and have more backyard kinds of conversations with others where we don't twist arms, we are not preachy, we're not condescending, but we dive more into how we share and receive Jesus' story in a way that pairs well with burgers and backyards. But if I had to specifically name this message today, I'd probably say it was the front porch message. 
because we can't just pinpoint Jesus in the backyard. He was more of a front porch kind of a guy. The front porch kind of refers to places where we go to meet people. It includes our home, but it also includes where we hang out with people, whether it be a boardroom or a meeting room or a PTO or the gym or the coffee shop or, 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 or somewhere else, the park. If you're feeling like already in this message, like, I'm ready, I'm, I'm, I just want to go out there and share, awesome. But you know what? I'm sure many of us here are not feeling that eager to go out and share. And part of it may be because if your faith to you might feel like doctrinally accurate, but relationally dead. And if that's the way you feel, there's hope. The Holy Spirit loves to refresh our hearts to be more like Jesus. And one of the primary ways he actually helps us grow and refresh our faith is through sharing our faith with others. Philemon is this little letter. It's only one chapter long. So in verse 6 it says this. It says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for or to accomplish the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is gaining the full knowledge of every good thing in Christ can only be found when we also share our faith. Can you remember a time when you saw your first friend who came closer to Jesus as a result of some of your story that you shared with them about your faith? Not because you were wanting to try to get a notch on your belt, but just because you, you couldn't help sharing how good Jesus was in your life and is in your life. Who's the last person you've talked with about the impact God is making in your life? If your relationship with God has gotten cold and, and kind of ho-hum, it could be because you're not sharing your faith is the cause. See, we always share things that are most important to us with someone else, and that actually brings us joy and brings us life to share those things. But not sharing your faith, if it's important to you, can make your faith grow cold. And on top of that, what Philemon is saying is not sharing your faith leaves you short of experiencing all the power and the joy that your faith is intended to bring to your life. If we... Go back to the verse that summarizes the whole law, the great commandment, the love God and love your neighbor. We see that that order in that commandment is vital. The second commandment is not an addition, but an outflow of the first. When we love God first, we end up finding this joy and this peace. And then out of that outflow comes the grace and the strength and the ability to love our neighbor. So how do we love our neighbor well? I'm going to spend just a few minutes today giving us a, a few practical ways to, to kind of spur our thinking for this series and to just have a great summer. And yes, despite the cold temps, summer is almost here. Summer's right around the corner. We all get that right. I, and just, you know, if you're, if you're worried about the cold temps today, I was talking to my uh, parents on Friday and they're in Minnesota and they were expecting two to three inches of snow. So just, just count your blessings. <laughs> count your blessings. So number one, people are not a mission to accomplish but a relationship to cultivate and genuinely enjoy. I love how the Message Bible puts it. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. See, Jesus came to dwell in our neighborhood to live among us. When he was here on earth, he was accused of being a drunkard because he hung out with those who got drunk. Notice Jesus was never called a gossiper. He was never called judgmental or someone who steals by anyone. He was a friend of people who were labeled as sinners. 
Jesus came to befriend with love and grace those whose behavior was not meeting expectations, whether it was the religious people's expectations or their expectations or other people's expectations. He came to befriend them. The first step in sharing the gospel is to just live normal lives with our neighbors and our friends, listening and sharing. And we often say around here, a friendship that cannot talk about religion and politics and still be friends is a mighty shallow relationship indeed. So one of our main goals in our relationship mission is for us to develop real, strong, deep, lasting, meaningful friendships that can talk about the most important things in our lives in winsome, friendly ways. Here are four things that help me when I try to build a friendship and I try to talk with people. So first, everyone that you meet is made in the image of God. And I think it's really critical that we understand that. I really believe that if we believe that everyone is created in the image of God, then we've got to understand that everyone, even those who are broken like us, somehow reflect God in some form or fashion or are drawn to him because they are in his image in their creation. Now, I believe we need Jesus Christ to put us back together. We can't do that on our own, but every one of you meet, every person you meet is made in the image of God. Number two, everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. I love Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He says it this way. He says, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we know that hurt people hurt other people, then we can try to figure out why they're hurting. And maybe we can think, maybe instead of focusing on how they're hurting me, we can try to discover why they're hurting and focus on that instead. Thirdly, every person you meet knows something that you don't and you need to learn it from them. I got that from years ago from How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie when I was 25 years ago working really hard on my people skills. Maybe I should read it again and work on people skills again. I don't know. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, says the same thing. He says, every man I meet is in some way my superior, and I can learn from him. So what I'm trying to say here is our posture is so critical in this thing. I think sometimes we go into friendships or sharing our faith with people with an agenda of what we're going to say and what we're going to do, and we build friendship as we build friendship and share our faith. Let's just take all that pressure off for a second. Do you know how you love your neighbor? You make sure you have time to listen to him. See, you can't change the narrative of someone's life if you don't know their narrative. I love how Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century, he was once asked what, what he would do if he had only an hour to share the gospel with someone. You know what he said? He said, I'd spend 55 minutes listening, and then in the last five minutes I'd have something meaningful to say. Isn't that profound? We've got to do a whole lot less talking and a whole lot more listening. Daniel Coleman, an Israeli-American psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 in the field of behavioral economics, shared a story of what it was like as a six-year-old in 1942 in Nazi-occupied France. 
As part of the occupation, the Jews were required to uh, wear a, a, you know, a, a patch, a star of David, and they had a 6 p.m. curfew. Well, one day, little Daniel was over at a friend's house playing, and he lost track of time, and it was after curfew, and he was afraid. He somehow had to make it home that night. So he, he turned his sweater inside out to hide the star, and he put his head down and tried to get home without being noticed. But sure enough, along the way, an SS officer spotted him. But he would have never imagined what would happen next. The soldier picked him up, hugged him, then put him down. He opened his wallet and showed him a picture of what he assumed was presumably this soldier's son, and then he gave him some money and sent him on his way. Kalman said, I went home more certain than ever that my mother was right. What was she right about? That people were endlessly complicated and interesting. So when he was before the Nobel Committee, he said, that's why I went into psychology. Which leads me to the fourth perspective that helps us talk and build relationship with others. Everybody you meet, they are more complicated than you realize. Now, God knows. He knows the number of hairs on every single one of our heads. And some of those are pretty few for some of us in here, right? Some of us are getting fewer. It's helpful for me to remember that each of us, I think, is a library. Think of each person you meet as a library. Sometimes we meet with them. We take one book off the shelf and we think, that's it. We know who this person is. But there's a whole library of stories yet to be read. The point is, when you care about people, you want to hear another story. So back to our main outline, number two, point number two. Share your life. As we approach summer of Memorial Day coming up, how can we take neighboring and living a front porch kind of life to the next level? I love how my brother-in-law is doing it in Minneapolis. He uh, takes his front porch communal gathering seriously. He's got a great backyard, great deck in his backyard. But the last couple of years, he's focused on his front porch. And you see a picture coming up here in a second of that, uh, of how he can welcome people and how he can just talk to passersby in the summers because nobody comes out in the winters, so you don't get to meet anybody then. And so he's built this wonderful place. The, the walkway is a few feet away, so he gets to say hi to everybody as they walk by. You may... You may just think of a more intentional way in, in your own life. Maybe, uh, maybe you block out uh, fr- several Fridays this summer and, and you pull your barbecue out of the backyard onto your front porch and you invite all your neighbors over and the, to come join you as the burgers are on the grill and the corn cobs on the grill and you just see what can happen and just getting to know some of your neighbors' names and getting to know them a little bit better in their stories. Choose to hang out on the front porch where you meet people intentionally. Number three, cross the street. So uh, another key way to grow spiritually is not just sharing your faith, but sharing your life with others who are not like you. People who are not like you ethnically, economically, politically, age-wise, etc. It expands your faith because you get out of your box and you begin to discover how much bigger God is. See, something happens when you step on somebody else's soil who is different than you. Who are the people in your life that you know who are that, who are different than you? I mean, walk across the street. Be the good news. A few years ago, Jeremy used this uh, video, but we feel like it's worthy to bring it back. So, yes, if you remember this, we're intentionally repeating. It's uh, Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller the Magicians. He has some interesting insights, especially because he is coming from uh, a strong atheist position in his view. So would you enjoy the video?
want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was old on big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's uh, not worth explaining. We had props in the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New Just part of the New Testament. little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize 
and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Wow. When you're that good, it's okay to have that deep of a relationship. Isn't that what we all want to be in the sharing of our faith? Even by an atheist like him, don't we want to be perceived and have somebody say about us, they were that good, and I appreciate the fact that they had the relationship. I think many people are atheists today because no one has brought the good news to them. They've only brought wrath, condemnation, or narrowness, and not listened and not respected. I mean, look at this interaction that left Penn emotional. With this short series, we're not talking about handing out Bible tracts and just leaving it. We're not talking about making big yard signs and billboards that say hell is real. You know, the basic belief of that I agree with. I mean, God is just. If God's not just, he's not worth following. Yet God took our sin. And he took justice upon his own back for our behalf. But this guy, Penny, was touched by someone who was willing to present a different face of the gospel in a good way. Have you heard the phrase, if you can't see it, you can't do it? The reason people often can't do the life of Jesus is they haven't seen it. They haven't seen it in, in you and me because we haven't befriended them and gotten close enough to them with honesty, or we haven't lived the life of Jesus openly before them. They don't know how to do something other than the American dream because they've never seen someone do the kingdom of God dream before their eyes. First Thessalonians 2 puts it this way. It says, so and he's, he was reflecting on his relationship and how he felt, genuinely felt, and, and, and this encapsulates so much of the power of this. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you. He's talking about the people who recently became converts to faith and formed a church. Being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not just the words, but also our own selves. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. Each person that we run into is of more value than any one of us realize because God gave himself for them, him or her, and they are created in God's image just like us. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I thank you that, that you are different. That you are different. That you define living a life full of grace and truth in a way where grace leads the way to truth. And, and people all, out, all throughout who met you when you were here on earth, just they were drawn to your goodness. 
Even if it offended them, they were drawn to your goodness. Even if they didn't believe what you were, who you are, they were drawn to your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you would not only give each and every one of us here who follow you a voice to share who you are, but you would teach us to do it in a way that people would say the same about us, not because of our perfection, because we certainly aren't, but because we're forgiven and we're gracious and we're honest. Lord, may many people around us, neighbors, bosses, colleagues, people who work for us, friends, family members who don't follow you, would they say of us, they were so good and I'm so grateful that we could have that conversation because they were so good. And Lord, through each and every one of us here, may many people discover and live in your goodness. So Lord, even as we turn to you in worship now, would you just take our praise and would you inhabit this place? Would you empower us now in this moment to be your followers, to be your heralds of good news? In Jesus' name, would you just continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.